Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. And today it is such a pleasure to be joined by garbage frontwoman, alternative icon, activist, feminist, and undeniable tour de force, Shirley Manson. <laughs> well, thank you, BT Wolf. It sounds very impressive. It's only the beginning. <laughs> So with a creative career that's included selling over 17 million records, opening the Scottish Parliament, recording a Bond theme song, being a leading role in the major US TV show Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, and receiving numerous awards, accolades to boot, Shirley Manson remains one of the most enduring and authentic voices in the world of culture and entertainment today. As an outspoken believer in human, environmental, social, political rights and issues, Manson has used her platform to speak out for the oppressed, the marginalized, the voiceless, spending much of her career raising awareness and money for causes close to her heart. Icon, legend, powerhouse. If you're looking for an artist and human being who walks her talk, Shirley Manson is it. Shirley, thank you so much. BT. <laughs> I mean, are you sure you've got the right person? <laughs> it's uh, very kind of you to say these lovely things. But, um, I mean, I sound like a saint. I'm so far from it. <laughs> I'm such a cunt. <laughs> anyway, here we are. But tell me, I mean, there's something in that. There's something in you reacting to what is just truth. This is what you've done. This is who you are. And, you know, I think the imposter syndrome is something so common to the artist complex. Do you still, does, does that, does it sound like I'm describing someone else? It does sound like you're describing someone else. I mean, I guess there's obviously certain things that I'm like, wow, we really did do that. You know, we really did open the Scottish Parliament and it was such a spectacular moment in my life. We really did a James Bond theme. But I think as any artist uh, would attest to you know, you're only in the moment, right? You're only as good as your last effort. And so although it's nice to have these things said about you and to have that kind of history as an artist, it doesn't really affect my day-to-day -day and it certainly doesn't affect my sense of self or my worth as an artist. So I wish it did. I wish I could walk around feeling like the bee's knees, but I don't There really... are plenty of people in LA to do that. Yes, there, there <laughs> certainly is. <laughs> This is very true. Never was a truer word spoken in Los Angeles. There can be a confusion, and definitely in this city, between sort of a healthy sense of self and ego, you know. So it's almost like self and ego are two totally different things. And so to have a, a kind of internal core and compass versus, you know, thinking you're great. And in a way, I feel like with you, it's like, you could achieve almost anything on the planet and you still would just be so down to earth and so grounded and so who you are. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because I think you being British, you'll understand this, is I have a very different way of looking at the world than my bandmates who are American. And we talk about this a lot. There's a real conflict between how they approach life as Americans and I do as a Scot. I come from a tiny island and so you can't afford to really boast. You can't afford to you know, exaggerate. You really have to stay within the parameters by which you exist. Um, otherwise, you get pulled up about it and you get pulled up about it in a public place and it's humiliating, it's horrible, so you try and avoid that at all costs. I notice here in, in Los Angeles in particular, people really want a front. 
And I think they believe that if they front, if they bullshit enough, they'll get what they want. And often in this kind of city, that is what happens is if you just walk the walk, talk the talk, you finally find yourself in a position where you're getting to do what it is that you want. So I understand it. It's just so far removed from who I am, how I grew up. And I also have this horrible fear of someone, as I do so often, thinking to myself, they're bullshitting. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, that person is so bullshitting me right now and it's really embarrassing. And I would rather die than have somebody think that while yeah. I'm speaking about myself. I'd just rather be really open and say, this is who I am. And there's no room for the, oh, my God, <laughs> this person is delusional. <laughs> there's no room for the spinal tap in Shirley Manson's life. And yet the element of spinal tap in my life <laughs> is enormous and comes with no warning on a you know regular basis. I remember when we first met, it was at the Grammy Museum after a talk between Dolly Parton and Linda Perry, and we were having dinner. And I think that was the first thing that really struck me about you. And the first thing I loved was just this no bullshit filter. Like <laughs> as in you were just anything that was being said where I was like, hmm, not sure I agree about that. You just come right out and say it. And is that something you've always done is just speak your truth? I think it is because I really resent people trying to deny the truth. And, you know, that attitude was never more magnified than when Trump was in office. And the obfuscation of the truth literally drove me to the point of madness. I thought I was going to go mad because I feel it's important that we tell the truth of who we are, how we are, what scares us, what excites us, what we love, what we don't love. I think people are so scared of the truth currently. It's like a weird virus where people just want to paint a different picture than is actually reality. And that that really concerns me. I think it's dangerous to democracy. I mean, I know I'm sounding mad, but I really believe that you have to, as a human being, tell the truth. Mm. Even if it's difficult, even if it's embarrassing, I think it's necessary, you know, and it helps everyone else live in their truth. You know, to, to not live in honesty, I think, is torment. It's like hell. Powerful. I completely agree. Well, thank you for all of your truth bombs. <laughs> there are always <laughs> May there be many. many more. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I am a social liability, as my husband will attest, and there's so often we come home from dinner parties and I have created a scene. And by a scene, I mean not an actual big scene, but there's always a moment during an evening where I will cast complete silence on a group of people. And my husband and I stand there and there's silence. And I can see my husband going, oh, God, here we go again. You know, and then on the way home, my mom was like, did I really embarrass you? I'm so sorry if I embarrassed you, darling. And he went, nope, you only embarrassed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's a common occurrence in our household. Well, it's like Marmite, isn't it? But I think better than Marmite because, you know, as you said, by you being who you are, it often is an activator. It's a catalyst to kind of shine a light or a, hold a mirror up to other people. And those who don't want to look at themselves or you know, want to sort of still play the delusion games or whatever it is, then then they do. And they're not going to be really, you know, they're not going to probably respond positively. But then for the people that align with you, like that's so much why you are who you are. <laughs> for better or for worse. I mean, my best qualities are definitely the ones that get me in the most trouble, weirdly. Well, not weirdly, paradoxes. I think yeah. it's like challenges being opportunities to grow, to be more conscious. You know, it's like how 
do we as human beings become more aware and more conscious and more intentional? And often that is when we're struggling. That's when things are not going our way and we have to up our game. Well, I think about you a lot in this manner. You know, if we think about the climate crisis that we all face, you know, globally, to me, it's the greatest challenge of our generation and the generations to follow us. And people are unable to look at that truth and even speak about it out loud. I mean, I just read yesterday that the BBC have dropped a programme by the god David Attenborough, who's talking about wildlife in Britain, how it's being affected by climate change. And they've pulled it for fear of offending politicians on the right and fans of right-wing politicians. They've, they've pulled the programme. And I just think, what is the point of this? Like, what, what's the end game here? Not telling the truth about this. Who are, who are you serving here? You're serving a bunch of people who are too scared to listen to the truth? I mean, it's crazy. And that we continue to, as a society, embolden this idea that because the truth hurts, it's therefore a political issue. It's like, it's not a political issue. This is a fact. It's going to affect the left and the right. It's going to affect everyone. And I'm shocked by it. It shocks me that people just will not look at the shit in the corner. It's mm. like, you have to look at the shit in the corner. There's the shit. Look at it. What are you going to do about it? Are you just going to leave it there? Or are you going to clean it up? Well, my style, BT Wolf, is to pick up a poop bag and scoop that shit up and put it in the bin. <laughs> in every symbolic and literal sense. Indeed. <laughs> so the name of this show is called Orange Juice for the Years. It's taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music, about how deep that goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, what does that mean to you, Shirley? Well, I think the relationship between person and music is really unique in that aspect it's so private you know literally goes between the music and you as an individual there's no breaker there's no translator it's just a very pure relationship which is unusual because all our other relationships with most things have some kind of interference yeah and music doesn't and music can touch you in ways that words or actions cannot and guess maybe that's what Oliver, the great Oliver Sacks is referring to. You know, it's just, it's a very private transaction. I don't know. I wish I understood fully the magic of music, but it's so powerful and evocative and sensory and, you know, everything. Do you feel like it's been a medicine in your life? I don't even think of music as medicine so much as it is a interface between mm. me and the world, I think. It's been a helpful interface and a, a means by which I've been able to express myself and enjoy connection with other people. I mean, I think above all, the prize for me as an artist, what I get to do is make people feel something mm. and it's a shared communion and that is such a great gift to experience you know and um, such a privilege that's been the thrill of my career like I really couldn't care less about the sales although it's wonderful to have a lot of sales at your back it's marvelous to have people come to your concert en masse mm. rather than just play for a handful of people but ultimately the discipline is the same whether you're playing for five people or five thousand or 500,000, you know, it's exactly the same experience and connection and it's powerful and emotional and wonderful, you know. There was a wonderful 
line that went, do you know Winter Marsalis? Of course. So he was an early mentor of mine, which is a sort of strange oh, story so because I don't do jazz. But one of the things that his father said was, if you're playing music to make money, don't. If you're playing music to uplift, do. And it's so simple and it's really what you're saying. But I think it's just that intentionality really governs every choice you make. You know, it's it's the energy that people feel ultimately in terms of where it's coming from. And so it's sort of an irony that I think a lot of the times when people try to fabricate it or do the paint by numbers approach, yeah, it might work for a brief period, but then ultimately people kind of, you know, they sniff it out. But when it's built on something that is so for the love of it, it is so respectful and knowing of music's value. It's amazing, like, the tentacles that that has. I want to go back to you saying that you don't do jazz. Like, <laughs> what kind of a statement that is? Because I think of all the people I know, BT Wolf, you do jazz. And I don't mean necessarily strictly musically, but the way you live your life, you know? Like, I didn't understand jazz when I was younger. And now it's become sort of one of my most obsessive genres of philosophy, of thinking, you know, of being, how to move through the world, you know. I too, when I was younger, said the same thing. I hate jazz. I mean, what an idiot. Like, I didn't even know what I was talking about. I didn't even understand what jazz was, you know. Although, I, of course, I loved a lot of jazz musicians, but I didn't really understand it. And it's only as I've gotten older, I'm like, wow, jazz is the most amazing, <laughs> like, freeing, most punk rock ethos I've ever come across in my whole life. And you, BT Wolf, are a jazz player one way or another. <laughs> you did say that though. I no, don't no. do jazz. But not like I don't do it as in I, I don't like it. But he was such a jazz purist. And so the fact that what I was doing wasn't jazz, but yeah, jazz, I love that. But you know what I mean? It's more like the way you think. Going back to one of the first times that music blew your mind open, what was the first track? Shirley, that imprinted on you? Well, I don't know, to be brutally honest, if it was the absolutely first song that imprinted on me, because to be honest, what imprinted on my mind when I was really young were, were hymns, because my father was really religious and we had to go to Sunday school. And those hymns that we learned at Sunday school probably were the first songs that like really have their hold on me to this day but I can't remember the names of them so I decided to go for something that I could remember the title of because I know like this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine I don't know what that hymn is called but that is in my brain for the rest of my life you know that kind of thing Jesus wants me for a sunbeam also another one there's just so many but somewhere over the rainbow first of all The Wizard of Oz is my favourite film of all time. I could watch it over and over and over and over again. And again, I love the overriding themes of that movie and that song and the way Judy Garland sings it and the way she looks. I was obsessed with the way she looked as a child, um, very different from me, you know, as a, as a redhead, freckled Scot. Here was this beautiful, brown-eyed, brunette angel singing about something really extraordinary and outside of my real understanding as a child, I think. So, yeah, it, it was something that took me out into another realm. And I listened to it today and I still get the same feelings of just that sort of, what's she singing about exactly? What is over the rainbow? You know, tiny little child's mind, what is over the rainbow? 
I'd like to find out. And so you spend your whole life trying to find what is over the rainbow or at the end of the rainbow or whatever it is. To this day, rainbows, because I live by the sea in Scotland, we get a lot of rainbows. And to this day, I'll like if my husband says, there's a rainbow outside, I'll rush to the window and look at it and just imagine all kinds of heavenly, weird, like extraordinary other ways of living. Wonderful. So now we're going to take a listen to Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland. Day I wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops That's where you'll find me And that was Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland and that was the song that Shirley Manson chose as the first track that imprinted on her after some of the religious hymns. Hits. (laughs) The religious hits. And how old were you? Do you remember roughly how old you were? Probably about four or five. I mean, I was young. I was a very spiritual child. Like, as I said, I kind of grew up in the church. My dad was kind of devout. He was my Sunday school teacher. I mean, I can remember having a relationship with Jesus and God. And I was very serious about it. And... I think one of the reasons why I am such a furious soul is because at some point this purity of love and relationship between me, Jesus, and God was destroyed when I realized it was there was so much hypocrisy in the world and so many people pretending that they had a relationship and were serious about their relationship and commitment to God, but actually didn't have that at all. And I could see them moving in ways that were completely at odds with so-called religious belief and it just destroyed something inside me from quite an early age I think I was about 11 when I was just like you know what dad this is bullshit I'm not going to the church anymore I don't believe in what you believe this is all bullshit and I can remember saying to him like the church is just full of like hypocrites and I can't stomach it one day longer I'm not going next Sunday that was my big rebellion do you remember what actually happened to make you have that reaction or have that new awareness? I can't really remember strictly. I mean, to me, strangely, there's a (laughs) such a stupid story I'm going to tell you, but it really destroyed my faith, was my granny had a, I think they're called Himmel figures. They're figurines. And it was of a little boy with a basket over his shoulder and inside his basket was some logs or something weird like that. Hummel or Himmel, I can't remember. But anyway, one of them got broken by my little sister. Pretty sure it was my little sister, right? But I got the blame because I was just the kid that always got the blame. Everything was my fault. I was the middle child. My big sister was kind of saintly, so I understand why she never got the blame. And the wee one never got held accountable for anything. It was always my fault. And I remember walking through my granny's garden. She had a rose garden. We were walking through the rose garden and I said... Grammy, I didn't break this figure. And she said, I don't believe you. And I went, you need to ask Jesus, did I break this? And I can remember her kind of looking at me. But anyway, I I always was held accountable for this broken figure. And I thought to myself, if Jesus really existed. He'd back me up. He would back me up. And Grandma would know that I had not broken this figure. But to no avail, Jesus and God didn't show up. So that was (laughs) one of the beginnings of uh, the breakdown in my love and devotion to God. But in a way, that's human interference, or it could be the human being aspect rather than 
the spirit aspect. Well, of course. However, I will say this is I am not spiritual mm. at all. I am not religious at all. I think religion, to me, strikes me as a bit kooky quite honestly. And they cause world wars and cause unbelievable pain and strife in people's lives and judgments. And I just can't fall in line with mm. any of that. So to rewind a little bit, and you've talked, you've kind of covered aspects of it, but just to set the scene, you were born in Stockbridge, mm -hmm. Edinburgh, Scotland, a middle child of three daughters. Um, your father was a university professor mm -hmm. and your mum was a stay-at-home mum. Kind of, for the most part. Yeah, I know there's not a great term for that. Isn't it awful? We used to call people like my mum a housewife. Yeah. I mean, how awful is that? Thank God that term has now gone by the wayside, I hope. Yeah, we need other synonyms. We need like doing everything. I was just going to say <laughs> the same thing, like stayed at home and did everything. <laughs> What was home life like for you, like outside of the religious component? I know you said at one point somewhere that it was very straight. It was unbelievably straight. And what I mean by that is like a fairy tale existence I had, to be honest. I grew up in a beautiful home, like an old Victorian three-storied house, which my granny basically bought from my dad. And at the time it cost £7,000. And my dad couldn't afford to heat it really. Um, so we were always in the freezing cold. But aside from that, we really had a blessed childhood. Like my mum was an orphan and as a result took her family experience really seriously and devoted herself entirely to her children, like terrifyingly so. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I never had kids was just I watched my mum absolutely 100% obliterate herself in motherhood. Uh, which was to my gain. Like, you know, we had hot water bottles put in our bed at night. My granny knitted us little socks because it was always so cold. And my mum cooked three meals a day and they were always served at exactly the same time. I mean, crazy shit. Like my underpants to go to school were heated on the aga. We had an aga stove and yeah, she'd heat our clothes on, on an aga, you know. I mean, really crazy. And that's what I mean when I say straight. It was just like, out of a movie. A bit like, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, as in a bit idyllic, really. It, it, totally idyllic. I mean, I didn't understand it either, and I was embarrassed by it because everyone that I knew who were my friends, they all came from, almost all exclusively came from broken homes or crazy homes. So I knew how weird and I thought it was creepy. And it's only now that I'm in my 50s that I'm like, oh my God, how lucky was I? This was so beautiful. And like, I'm so privileged and so spoiled. But Back then, I was embarrassed by it. I wanted to be cool. Isn't it weird how we always want whatever someone else has? Or, you Nutty. know, we always, we're always so self conscious of something. You know, my mom would always wear leather jackets to school, and I was so embarrassed. I was like, Amazing. And with her big afro, and everyone was, all the teachers were terrified of her because she'd start a petition on something. And I was like, oh. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just so crazy, isn't it? What do we know? We know nothing. <laughs> was there a lot of music in the house? There was a lot of music in the house. My mum was a singer. She used to sing in a, she used to sing with a band called the Squadronaires, basically do wartime kind of like the Andrews Sisters, Peggy Lee, Ella Fitzgerald, those kind of songs. And so she was always playing music in the house. We had a red dance set record player that I was obsessed by. We listened to a lot of musicals, showbiz, show tunes, you know, like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Sound of Music. Cabaret, all those classic uh, musicals. I sang in a choir and I played. It's hard to believe now because it's. I just don't think of myself as a musician really, but I was playing the piano, I was playing the violin and the clarinet. 
I played in the school orchestra. Music was a huge part of my life. From a young age? From very young. How young? That's a good question. I think I started singing in the choir at seven, and then I joined the orchestra around about nine, nine or ten. And your mum, wasn't there a performance, a time you watched her sing, that Mm. really imprinted on you? Yes, and what's so creepy is I can go into that little room now and map it all out in my mind. It was at our church, which has been since destroyed it was turned into a set of flats but it was a really beautiful church and they had an anteroom next to it that had a little stage had blue velvet curtains that got wound with a like a <laughs> hand winder and my mum came out and sang on a clear day I can see forever and she was wearing a white dress with blue cornflowers on it and I was on the tiny little seats right at the front with my best friend Sarah Griffith and we were just bewitched at the total transformation that overcame my mother and that I think was the moment when I fell in love not with music because I was already in love with music but the idea of transformation and performance. Do you think she would have wanted to be a singer you know full-time? No I never got that sense of her I never asked her to be honest she must have wanted it to a certain degree because she would do it she would perform for at people's weddings and she was obviously in this band the Squadroneers for a bit and She performed with the concert party, I believe they were called. But I don't know. I don't know. She didn't have that kind of weird desire like so many of us who do what we do have, which is to command attention. She didn't have that. Mm. My mum was such a graceful, social person. Like she just was always just right. Mm. You know, she never upset the mood in any way, shape or form, took too much energy, took up too much room. She was just always just right. What a special person. She was amazing. But I think, again, when you come, she was in care until she was five years old. That is a long time for a child to believe they're not wanted. Where does she even get the ability to then create such a foundation of love? I mean, that is, yeah, I'm thinking about that now. That is just insane. Yeah, it's it's unfathomable to me, you know. Because I have struggled with that my whole life is how to give love. I don't, I'm not very good at it, funnily enough, because I think with my mom, I was just giving it. And then I don't really know how to even receive it from anybody but my mom. Like, I'm not very good at receiving love either, let alone giving it. So I don't know. Yeah, she had just just an unfathomable ability to love. And it's extraordinary, really. So seeing her perform... Did that spark anything in you that wanted to perform? A hundred percent. Like I said, that's when I fell in love with that kind of transformation, Mm. which then I saw mirrored in someone like David Bowie. It was the same thing of that kind of just complete assimilation of something other than normal living, normal life, normal being. It was something extraordinary in a different realm. What was your first public performance? Were you comfortable? I was so uncomfortable I was performing with my ballet school, but I was really young. And when I say really young, I would say I was maybe three or four max. And there's a photograph somewhere. My dad has a photograph of it happening, but I'm with my big sister. It's what they called, I think, the sisters finale. And all the sisters that were in the ballet class would come out together, the older sister and the younger sisters. And we would perform a number and it was The number we were performing, I was in an aquamarine swimsuit singing Never Smile at a Crocodile. And I was singing it with such love and fervor in my heart that the ballet teacher grabbed me, pulled me out, like lifted me up and put me at the front of the stage. And I remember looking out and I was so horrified 
that I dropped my head, looked at my feet and never looked up and never sang another note. And that was my first public performance. So how did you get over that? I have no idea. <laughs> I think I was just so shocked that she, I think she was enjoying my fervor. You know, I was so into it. And then, yeah, the, the attention freaked me out. But I think I got slagged so much by my mom and dad for just failing to take the spotlight that I probably thought to myself, well, I'm not going to make that mistake again. But that's interesting <laughs> because I know your dad was very academic and I know that there was a sort of creativity is maybe over here and, you know, academia mm -hmm. is, was more to this day. encouraged. Oh, I know the type. But then they wanted you to take the spotlight. Ooh, I don't think they necessarily wanted me to take the spotlight. They just didn't want me, my dad in particular, just didn't want me to shame him. But I don't think he really expected me to take the spotlight. And to be honest, neither of my parents are particularly, as you so rightly pointed out, particularly interested in the dramatic arts or the performing arts. Or they just were never that interested in it, to be honest. So they were they were kind of very neutral about my involvement in performing, in dancing, in music. They didn't discourage it. But neither did they actively encourage it. Was it was a hobby really. or... Yeah, they just knew I enjoyed it. So they were like, they tolerated it. But even to this day, my dad will say, don't you regret not going to university? Why would I regret that, dad? <laughs> well, I mean, you could have been an academic. You've got the right brain for it. Yeah, but I didn't do that, did I? I mean, it was, it's unbelievable. And he brings it up on a regular basis and it always ends up in a really horrible argument. Really horrible. Uh, you know, I wonder why, Shirley. I mean... <laughs> So how else were you like, like what other traits did you have as a young kid? Because you've got some sort of a sense of, you know, being the middle child and feeling kind of always blamed for everything. And you mentioned having red hair and just, I guess, feeling a little, I don't know. Off. Off. Okay. <laughs> but, but then you've got this juxtaposition of, you know, you loved theatre, you loved the arts, you loved after that scarring performance um you know you love performing or you love being on stage so give us more about young Shirley like what was young Shirley like I don't know I'm utterly perplexed because I don't really remember myself and my idea of how I was doesn't jive with my surviving parent my father's idea of who I was now he claims and there's no reason really for me to doubt him that I constantly was saying, I want to be famous. I want to be famous. But I have no memory of that and I have no connection to that desire. But I have to accept that that's his perception of it. But that said, I mean, I was such a, a game of two parts because on one hand, I was a very good student in what we call primary school. Really good student, like A plus Easy peasy, didn't have to study, just swam so through super it. bright. You were super bright. I was super bright. You were and you are super bright. Thank you very much, BT Wolf. But I, I was back in the day quite an enlightened little soul and I loved reading and I was kind of normal in adverted commas. But I hated having red hair. It really bothered me. And I hated being the middle child because I felt like I had no identity. And through performances, how I gained a sense of myself. It was mine. I didn't have to share it with my sisters. This was me and mine, um, like really crazy. But then I went to high school and I got really badly bullied the first year of my high school. And it just shut me down. It shut me down academically, most importantly. Like I just didn't want to draw attention to myself by shining academically. And I just gave up. I literally just gave up trying. 
I didn't want to answer any questions at class. I was stressed out in class, so I wasn't really learning the way I'd easily learned in the past. And it just really disrupted my sort of academic ambition. And yeah, I just kind of kept my head down. I had an amazing drama teacher who invited me to join a youth theatre outside of school. And that was my life-saving moment. Like, that saved my life, I think, from misery. I was acting in plays that got put on in big theatres around Edinburgh. I was very good at it. I got a lot of great roles and it was just joyful. And through that, I met a boy who had a band who needed a backing vocalist and keyboard player one summer. And he said, will you come and join the band? And having never even imagined in my wildest dreams that I would be in a band, let alone want to be in one, um, I joined this band and there, boof, I just found myself as a keyboard player in <laughs> a fucking band. I mean, it's like crazy. And that was Goodbye Mackenzie. Goodbye Mr. Mackenzie. So what Shelley Manson was the first record that really shaped who you are and had a major impact? Uh, probably The Scream by Susie and the Banshees. I mean, Susie changed my whole life. I know people say that all the time, but she really did. I mean, she changed everything about the way I perceived the world. And I identified so strongly with this woman who I knew wasn't conventionally beautiful. She wasn't trying to appease the male gaze. She was androgynous. She looked like she came from outer space. There were all the things that I felt that she embodied. And she thrilled me and she felt dangerous and she felt powerful. And I was obsess literally obsessed by her. I mean, I'm still obsessed by her. It's like when I found that she was coming to play here in May, I burst into tears. I mean, like, this, I'm a 56-year-old woman. I mean, this is not natural, and I don't think, is to have still this feeling towards your teenage idol, you know. But that's how much of an important role she's played in Did my Did you life. ever meet? I have. I have met her, and it was wonderful, and she was incredible. And, yeah, she's a dream. She's a dream. But she had a huge influence on me, and I bought every single – or asked for every single Susie record I could get my hands on at the time, you know, whether it was for my birthday, for my Christmas, whether I could afford it with my pocket money, whatever. Um, and I poured over these records religiously and I know every word, every song, every outfit, every like magazine that came out around these times that she released records. And yeah, I was, I was really crazy about her. And what song are we going to listen to? I think we're going to listen to Nicotine Stain because... Smoking for me as a teenager was also a big deal. And when I heard this song, I really related to it. I mean, you, you know, I forget, I was really young. I was like 13 years old. I smoked. I knew it was wrong or bad for my health, but I loved it and it made me feel cool. I mean, I know you're not supposed to say things like that, but it made me feel cool as a 13-year-old. I had this secret. I had a secret from everybody. It wasn't like my peer group were all smoking. It was just me and my girlfriend at the time. And we smoked surreptitiously and it brought me such meditative relief. And so when I heard this song, I was like, oh, Susie totally gets me. Okay, now we're going to take a listen to Nicotine Stain from the album The Scream by Susie and the Banshees.
And that was Nicotine Stain from the record The Scream by Susie and the Banshees, and that was the album and song that Shirley chose as the first record that really had a major impact on her, and specifically Susie having this major impact on you. Was she the first time you'd sort of seen someone that gave you a sense that you could really be whoever you wanted to be? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, she was everything that I felt like, an outsider. I loved that she wasn't playing the coquette sex kitten, the sex object. I mean, I really responded to the fact she was dressed up like a warrior. And, you know, again, it's it's so easy to forget now in 2023 how rare that was. It was so rare to see a woman who wasn't dressing to please. You know, it's, it's it was extraordinary. Yeah. And it was so thrilling and empowering. And I don't know why, you know, as as a young person, I had my own hang-ups and refusal to adhere to these rules that I felt were being imposed on me because I was a female. I was really quick to understand that somehow things were different Mm. for girls. Why is it that, you know, the boys get to learn how to work circuit boards and build furniture and we're stuck learning how to do an upside down fucking pineapple cake i mean what the fuck or learning even worse learning how to make circle skirts (laughs) i mean it made me insane it made me insane at a really young age before i even understood what i was talking about before i even understood actually that you know you're right these instincts that you had were a hundred percent correct but i didn't know that at the time i just knew that i resented it and i didn't want to play into that sort of role and i also feel like her and you know the slits and polystyrene there were so many incredible fucking amazing women that were also like the way they were singing it was you know even just something as basic as that but it's like they were breaking it down yeah they were i mean it's funny i'm grinning because just remembering all that i mean to see the slits front cover you know when they're in the mud and they're naked it was like what the fuck is that what is that you know, because I grew up, and I've talked about this extensively, where naked women were in newspapers, like women were just something to like wank over. I mean, it really made me sick mm. as a young girl. And to then see like the slits take that power and just make it look scary and weird and powerful was so thrilling, <laughs> you know. And these these women that you reference still to this day feel that way to me they Mm. still feel irreverent and powerful and they changed and continue to change the way women are able to operate in the world still under this unbelievable misogyny and patriarchy and and wickedness Mm. that that surrounds women to this day and I'm very frustrated still with how women are expected to be in in the public eye you know and whether it's what they're young actors or whether they're young singers or there just doesn't seem to be a lot of real upstarts Mm. like proper upstarts because they won't get arrested they can't get past go at least what was so amazing in the 70s is everyone who had a brain got past go to the point where they were shaking up society shaping the way a modern woman can be up until you know like i guess out of those loins came someone like madonna so yeah, thr- it was a thrilling time, you know, that new wave of just complete free thinking. And were you singing a, a lot at that point, you know, when you were listening to those records? No, I mean, I aped them. 
like I was a really good mimic. I could mimic them and sound like them. And I remember one of my friends, Fiona McGarry, going, you sound like Susie. And it couldn't have thrilled me more. (laughs) But I didn't think of myself as a singer. I didn't think of myself as anything. I mean, I felt really lost as a teenager. I had no sense of what I wanted to do or how I could do it. I didn't have a burning desire to be a singer. I didn't have a burning desire to be anything. I just was me. And I fumbled from pillar to post. And I ended up being in a band, like by just total default. I'm just reading Mickey Berenice's autobiography currently, and it sounds much to me the same thing. If she just kind of fell into it, like being in a band, she didn't sort of like pursue it in any way. I know a lot of people who have set their minds on it and and that's the, their aim in life and that's what they do. I was not like that at all. I am here by complete and utter default, you know, and not just the first band I was in or the second band that I was in, but the third band, which was my last band and my current band, that was by total default too. It wasn't, I didn't pursue that, that pursued me, you know. Well, you fumbled into some good stuff, Shirley Manson. I certainly did, <laughs> BT Wolf. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a bit of a fumble every now and again. So tell us, like, with Goodbye, Mr. McKenzie, you know, and having had this experience of secondary school being challenging and feeling, you know, pretty ostracized and then finding the theatre group and maybe finding more of your people. I'm not assuming anything. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Having that band, that first experience with them, did that provide a good foundation of sorts for what was to come? And did you feel like you found some of your people, you know, by then? I find my people at theatre in... uh Edinburgh Youth Theatre, mm. for sure. I find my people, and that was the trampoline on which I bounced into a band and found further my people. I mean, it was like joining a rock and roll circus, you know. They were they were very rebellious. That first band I was in, Goodbye McKenzie, taught me everything I know, and it never got more debauched than or more rock and roll than that first band I was in. We did everything, basically, you know, and we saw everything, and I wouldn't have had the career that I have now had I not been fortunate enough to bounce through that band and be educated by the experience because I brought a lot of that experience to garbage and pulled my own bandmates through certain situations because of the experience I'd had so yeah I I was very very grateful for that finding your people is everything you know I was a self-harmer when I was a kid I was very frustrated the minute I joined a band, that kind of that angst went away. It wasn't like my feelings of, towards myself suddenly improved. It was just I just didn't feel the compulsion to hurt myself anymore, you know. I didn't act on these impulses anymore, and I don't know why. Did your parents know what was going on? No. I mean, I was so difficult that my mum, who, as I've mentioned, was a sort of amateur singer, she lost her voice. She literally had to go to therapy to relearn how to sing because she was so stressed out because I was so difficult. And I I wasn't trying to be difficult. It wasn't like I was going out my way to be a rebel in any way, shape or form. Like I was still someone that wanted to have a nice relationship with my family. I loved them. I just found I couldn't. I just found them annoying. I had a terrible temper. I was very volatile. I was very frustrated and depressed. And it's only now again as an adult that I realized what I think happened was I was in a family that were not emotionally articulate. And that was the only failing, was that they couldn't speak about feelings. They wouldn't speak about feelings. Even to this day with my dad, you know, he can't have certain conversations with me that I'm dying to have, willing to have. He's just not capable of meeting me there. And I think that was what probably 
engendered my fury was I just I wanted to operate on one level and my family were operating on an entirely different one. There's quite a lovely line which is people can only love at the level of consciousness that they're at Mm -hmm. and it's not exactly what you're saying because I think you know your mom it sounds like she really I read somewhere that you know you were really forged in her love you obviously felt so much love but then that communication it's being able to emotionally articulate your feelings it's not everyone's back no it's not and even now I realize it and again it's sort of a slow dawning for me of like I am actually really fucking good about talking about my feelings Mm. and I can also sit in the maelstrom of somebody else's feelings like when somebody says something pretty dark or scary or weird to me I don't feel scared I don't feel creeped out or fearful or scared I can see the room turn and I can sit in that storm like I'm totally comfortable with people telling me all kinds of shit that I know a lot of other people cannot stomach that they don't have the language for it Mm. they don't have the emotional capacity for it and it's only now I have a pride that I can do that now whereas when I was younger I was told you're too sensitive you're too this you're too that and now I'm like I feel sorry that you all are not sensitive enough to actually receive this and I know it's it's a law so where did you learn that I guess from my mom because I could tell my mum pretty much anything. But my mum didn't have an education, really. Like, I grew up in a very academic family. My dad's a real intellectual person. And my granny, my dad's mum, was like a double honour student in the 1920s when women didn't even really go to university. She had a photographic memory. She was brilliant. My mum didn't have that kind of background, whereas I did. I, I grew up in the under the cloak of that brilliance, you Mm. know. So I don't think my mum had a lot of uh, vocabulary in that regard for certain kinds of things. I mean, who knows, right? It's like, I know I'm getting right up my own arse here, but I feel like I'm in my middle age. I'm like, I'm having to pull apart these things. You know, I want to make sense of my life before I'm dead. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's the post box. Post arriving. I love it. (laughs) I love the post. (laughs) So this is something you must have talked about to death, but of course it is a kind of a key moment. So tell us about, you know, that first audition, that first garbage audition after Steve Marcus or Suffocate Me on MTV. And you lied about having written before. I did. Oh my God, to my eternal shame. But it led to a second audition. It did. It did. I mean, it was a smart thing to do, as it turns out, in the end, although I'm not a great supporter of telling lies. As I said earlier, I feel like you're going to get caught out in a big juicy lie and it's really bad. And I really regretted it the minute it came out of my mouth and it got me into a lot of hot water and a lot of stress during that first making of that first record because I really just had to jump and it was terrifying. I might have gotten a little more support had I not lied. But anyway, I did lie and said, yeah, I'm a writer. I've been in a band for 10 years, which was true. And they just assumed I was telling the truth. And so they were looking forward very much to having a a fourth equal member of the writing partnership. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, the, the audition was a disaster. I was on tour with my second band, Angel Fish, at the time, which was falling apart for a billion and one reasons. But I was under stress with that which was one of the reasons why I took the call for the audition in the first place, because I was like, well, what the fuck else am I going to do? Like, this band's going down the toilet. They've told me already they're leaving. Um, They're out. So what do I do now? So, yeah, somebody asked me for an audition. I'm like, sure. And it was a fiasco because they were like, okay, we're just going to play you some music and you just, like, you know, make something up. I'm like, yeah, okay. And they play the music. And, of course, having never written before in my life, I didn't even know how to start. 
And so it was like a really bad edition of Shreds, if you've ever watched Shreds okay. on YouTube. It was just I was making vowel sounds or <laughs> consonants. <laughs> I'm just kind of going, I mean, just nonsense. It was so embarrassing. Pioneering. It was just awful. Yes, pioneering. <laughs> I should have said lied and said it was my pioneering style. But it was a disaster. And Move just, over, yeah, Susie. Exactly. Move over, Susie. This is the new style. Um, it was a disaster. But then they called back, I think because we got along really great. We really got along great as human beings. Um, and that's unusual. And I think that was what made them go, you know what? We really liked her. It was a bit of a disaster. We were unprepared. Because they really just threw me in and said, go. And that's a lot to ask. It would be a lot to ask of me now. And mm. I've written hundreds of songs at this point. Yeah. You know, and it would still be stressful to me if I went into an environment where I didn't know anybody. So they gave me a second chance. They were a bit more prepared. They had the bone, the real bare bones of queer. Or was that later on? Anyway, that's when I sealed the deal was with queer because they had a demo of that. And I started singing it in an entirely different... I changed some of the lyrics and entirely changed the way I think they expected me to perform. And, and that's where they were like, oh, this is our girl. I think I read somewhere that you guys had also bonded over mutual disdain. Yeah, I think we shared a sense of humor about it, you know. Um, yeah, we just all bonded over that. We had a really feel-good time. And I remember once going to an acting class and the teacher there, Sharon Chatton, who's fucking genius, she was like, look... There are millions of artists all over the world who are all vying for the gig, right? The audition. She goes, there's so much to be said for being a nice person. There's so much to be said for being someone that everyone gets along with on set. And I remember thinking, oh, that's, that was huge in me getting the gig with Garbage. It's like I tickled them and they tickled me. And that's powerful because then you're like, well, actually, we have something we can really build on here because a band is supposed to be a relationship, yeah. a functioning relationship. I think, though, you're also slightly underselling yourself because, you know, the video that they saw and you performing and the way you were singing and just everything about you, which, okay, you don't come and ace, you know, the writing a perfect song on the spot, but you were kind of everything they were hoping existed in, a, in an artist, you know. Well, it was very different from what all the other women were doing at that time. Like, there was a lot of, like... I call the female lad culture where women for some reason in the 90s at some point felt like they if they could outlad the lads that would be a form of real feminism you know and everybody was sort of dressed in jeans and t-shirts or check shirts and grungy hair and that was a big thing back then you're describing what I'm <laughs> wearing right now no but back then it, it was a thing it was a movement of like everybody was dressed like that I love the way you're dressed by the way <laughs> and I love that look like I fucking loved L7 I was crazy about them the way they looked I loved that but I knew that that was just not authentically me you know so I looked different and I sang different I wasn't screaming I wasn't shouting mm. I just underplayed everything vocally and that was unusual at that time and it made me stand out I mean I have understood as a middle child that you must stand out no matter what as a performer as an artist you have to stand out or you will get drowned but there's a lovely thing there which I think is also within you the best stuff exists really in the paradoxes you know and the best stuff I think often is having those two things run simultaneously extrovert introvert fierce tender terrified confident and so because I think human beings are like that right we're all multifaceted yeah but to really be in that space and be 
comfortably uncomfortable or uncomfortably comfortable in that space you know and so you're creating something you are something that is both understated and original and unique and very clear you know that's that's a really powerful place to be in and so it also is interesting to me that you you say you fell into it because i think you're also such a driven person that in a way you know, even going out to Madison. I mean, that was a decision. Yeah, that was a decision. That said, you're right. I mean, I do have a lot of drive. My drive served me so well once I got that gig. Because mm. I knew, like, holy shit, this is a moment that's not going to come around again. You need to make this work. And that's where my drive kicked in. And that's why my band have had such a long career, is in part due to my unbelievable drive which was, no, we are going on the road and we're going to keep going on the road until nobody wants us on the road anymore. And we would play for two years at a time. We built a really solid foundation. We didn't have a hit record, you know, contrary to popular belief. We didn't have a hit record. We just had a record that continued to boil over really slowly and we built really slowly an international fan base. And we have that to this day, which has put us in a position now where I'm 56, I'm way older than... 99.9% of all female artists of all time. <laughs> it's changing, to be fair, like in the generation before me. So the Susies, the Patti Smiths, the Debbie Harrys, Stevie Nicks, Susie Sue, you know, uh, Chrissy Hind, all of those cats were the first real women to have long careers into their 70s. That's never happened before in the history of the world, where a woman is seen to be viable commercial entities. Never, ever happened. And it was the generation I fell in love with who were those pioneers. My generation now, we've been around a long time too. So it's like me and Gwen Stefani and Courtney Love, like Missy Elliott, Fiona Apple, like there's a lot of my generation now still sticking around past our, you know, so-called sell-by date. That in itself is, again, unusual. There's more of us than there were of the previous generation. And behind us will come a whole, like we, we continue to breed and there'll be more and more women who mm. continue into their 70s and 80s. Thank God. But it is highly unusual that I am still here making records, still signed to a record label, getting to tour the world. That's so unusual, you know, and that in part, something that I always want young artists to know is because we fucking did the work. Yeah. We did the work and we continued to do it way past anyone expected us to do it. And it pays off, you know, pays off for anyone. It's like I keep saying, you put a penny in the bank, keep putting the penny in the bank. Sooner or later, you're going to have thousands of pennies in that bank. Yeah. It's just a no-brainer. It's a basic mathematics. Just do the fucking work. Well, and it's building a really strong foundation and a really deep root system so you can be an oak tree as opposed to like a tomato or whatever that yeah. has its moment and then is gone. Yeah. You know? I mean, I have a lot to thank for Peter Mensch, who was our manager at the time from Q Prime Management, who said... You know, what kind of career is it that you all want? This was a time when garbage was really flailing around and we'd gone past being the, the sort of zeitgeist and we were trying to find our feet and our record company were trying to get us to work with hip hop artists. And we were like, this is not who we are. Like, we love hip hop, but this is there's no basis of hip hop in our collective experience. That would just be doing it, trying to make money or be successful. And our manager at the time was like, well, what kind of career is it you're looking for? Are you looking for a hit in two years' time? Or do you want a 25-year career? We were like, we want a 25-year career. And he's like, all right, then you just have to stay strong and 
have that moment when nobody wants to listen to you anymore and everybody thinks you're old and over and, and you're forgotten about. Hey, Bowie was uncool so many times. Hard to believe, No, right? uh, but this is what's crazy. It's often also when someone passes away, there's oh. this romanticism and this sudden like rose-tinted goggles and it's all, oh, you know, he was always this pioneer innovator, which yes, he was, but he was not celebrated for what he was doing. No. That it drives me mad, actually. The other thing that I really hate is there's so many pop artists that, you know, they're always making all the right references. Like, I listen to Bowie, I listen to Iggy <laughs> Pop, I listen to this, that, and the next thing. And I'm like, well, where is it in your music? Because I'm not hearing one tiny note of any of these artists that you're talking about in your music. Yeah. Not lyrically, not spiritually, not energetically, not musically. Like, where is this? And it's almost like just this performative cultural expectation of like, you must name these people as your influences. And I just see through it so quickly and it makes me sick. Cause if you really fucking love Susie and the Banshees, she's gonna appear in your records. You know what I mean? And if you're saying that you love her, then I have to hear it or I don't believe you. The thing I also, <laughs> I'm gonna add one thing I hate is that, you know, all of those choices of the people that we're talking about at the time were not obvious, were not popular. There was no blueprint. They were going off and exploring this weird space and feeling awkward and, you know, outside everything. And then as soon as they've been deemed some great god or their t-shirts are in Urban Outfitters, which is <laughs> sort of connected to what you're saying, then everyone's like, oh yeah, it almost becomes a roadmap. And it's like, no, because the point is there was no roadmap for what they were doing. So you go do something totally different. But the problem is the culture no longer tolerates that kind of off-piste actions. You know what I'm saying? So you get punished. If you try something different, it doesn't work. You are then punished. Mm. Back in the day, I don't think that was the case. I mm. think people might say, yeah, well, we don't like this record, but then they'd be equally as excited for your follow-up. Now it's just like you make one false move. And unfortunately, it does seem like you don't really get another chance. So it's funny that we're just living in this weird cultural hot tub it's terrifying but you're absolutely right I mean nobody was copying anybody back then because you didn't have the resources right so now you see all these artists they have like this incredible music education via YouTube where they can study artists copy them mm. and so by the time they play their first gig they look like well-versed performers and yet there's something just so empty about it because they're not generating their desire or their need to connect with an yeah. audience instead you're like looking at it going well i know where you learned that move it's strange because i know it's very tempting to copy all these people that you admire mm. but if you don't find a way of having a unique expression self-expression it doesn't make you very special and like yeah sure you might get a hit on the radio because you sound like billy eilish for 10 minutes yeah but then what happens then where are you at then how do you know how to move forward into the next phase of your career. And also not getting attached to things that you've done and then not moving on. You know, I think it's like, you did that, do something else. Yeah, but the public want you to repeat. That's the thing. I mean, people are still going harping on about our first record. It's like, have you any idea how much time has passed since that first <laughs> yeah. record? And why would we want to repeat that when we've already done it? Yeah. Like, I get it for you as a listener. Maybe you're not into where we've gone. That's cool. But don't expect us as artists to keep doing the same shit. It's so boring. You know, with Garbage, you were very much breaking new ground, you know, mixing rock riffs, electronic beats, loop samplers, changing the pop genre completely. 
and you know and also being very popular so both almost being fringe and popular which is that paradox um but you talk about the pushback and i feel like that's something that always happens with pioneering new ground but were you aware what you were doing was so innovative and how did it also feel to have people saying it was inauthentic because it was a studio band and things like that when you yourself are so authentic and that's yeah. such a big one for you i don't think anybody necessarily in the band thought that what we were doing was innovative per se but i think we all under- understood this was a fresh way of putting tracks together you know like taking advantage of the new technology was smart and creative and different and we hadn't heard it before so we were all excited by the prospect of what we could do but i don't think anybody in the band was going yeah this is so you know like unusual and we're really redrawing the map of you know pop music mm. as it turns out i think we amongst several other artists around that time were redrawing the frame in which pop music could exist but i don't think there was massive consciousness other than just also an innate curiosity about where we could take that technology. But yeah, to be told that we were inauthentic was astounding. You know, like you say, I mean, for all my many, many faults, the one thing I am is authentic. Like I am about as authentic as you're going to get. And I know this about myself. And in the music press, particularly in Britain, which was, you know, such an influential market around the globe, in Britain, the young male journalists that sort of held the seats of power back then took great umbrage at me, I think, because I was unapologetic, because I wasn't fucking trying to jerk them off. I, they fucking made me like want to puke most of the time. I had contempt for them, and I think they registered that. They understood it, and so they took ample opportunities to really kick me in the teeth a lot of the time. And I just remember being on a bus, being bussed into a festival, I think in Spain, and somebody handing me an enemy to read or a melody maker or sounds. I can't remember who it was, but I remember opening it and there was a review about garbage. And it was, again, saying how inauthentic I was and what phonia was and how I thought I was something really special. But in fact, Leslie, I think her name was, from Steps, which was a dreadful like pop band yeah, at the I time. I remember. Um, who were written for and controlled by men. Like somehow this person, Leslie, maybe it was her name, from Steps is way more of an authentic and valid uh, musical entity, as was, I think, they, they also equated me to Natalie Imbruglia, who at the time had been a massive TV star, you know. And I just, I was really upset, really upset me and made me really angry. I'm like, I've been in a band for 10 years before Garbage. That doesn't count, you know, like my reality was getting warped and mangled and it, it made me insane. It made me insane. But I think that was what they were trying to do. But did it also fan the flames of your fury to be like, fuck <laughs> you, I'm <laughs> going to prove you wrong? I don't know. I think I already had the, the fury. The fury is something that comes naturally to me, very easy. I don't need much fanning. No, I think it really hurt me and in my own mental sick way, sort of half believed it. You know, wow, I must be really shit. That I'm shittier than Leslie, if that's indeed her name, from Steps. I must really suck. You know, it plays into that, I think you said it earlier, about that sort of syndrome of not being real enough, not being talented enough, not... Which I winning think enough. the best people have. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it fucked with me. But now I can laugh at it because it's so long ago and it's all these journalists, they're all gone. 
you know, every now and again, I've over the years of Googled their names. They're not no longer right. We're not just gone. It's like, look what you've done. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, there is satisfaction in that. I mean, there's some enormous satisfaction in surviving the music industry for this long. Like, because I know for all my failings, all my faults and failures as an artist, not many people can stomach this for mm. this long and remain intact. And I have remained intact. And I didn't go off in any kind of mad ego nonsense. Like so many people I have met over the years who have gained success lose their fucking minds. They lose their minds. They turn into monsters, you know, literally like demanding and don't you know who I am and spending all their money on a fancy car and then being bankrupt about two years later, mm. um, not being able to hold their shit together on tour. They have to cancel all their dates. You never hear from them again. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And I'm like, I kept my shit together, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Try me. Tell us why the Holyrood gig was one of the greatest of your life. Oh, my God. I mean, we got asked to perform at the opening of Scottish Parliament. It was the first time Scotland had won its own parliament in something like mad, like 230 years. Big deal. Not just to me, not just to my family, but to my country. And to be invited to play and honour that moment felt monumental. It also happened to come in, the request for us to do it came in the same week that we got the Bond theme. And it just felt like I was on top of the world and everything was going my way. And it was just a heavenly moment. And then it was a beautiful summer's evening, which is unusual in Scotland. You can't rely on the weather. I mean, sometimes it could be beautiful. Sometimes it could be an absolute hot mess. But in this particular occasion, we got blessed. My parents were there. To this day, I can still remember how it felt and how magical it felt. And it was profound, you know. And it was at a time that was really interesting for Scottish politics. We had some great politicians at the time. Uh, Donald Dewar being the first man of Scotland, who was our sort of first leader, was such a beautiful man, had such great principles and is sorely missed in Scottish politics. Didn't he choose Stupid Girl? He did. When he did Desert Island Diss, he, he picked Stupid Girl as, what as honor. Uh, a huge honour, saying this is synonymous with the best day of my life. Donald Dewar said this. Uh, this is the last thing I remember hearing on this big day in my Scottish politics. And yeah, it just felt dreamy. Okay, so after that performance, your dad didn't say, great, you didn't go the academic route. I know he still thinks I should have gone the academic route, but he was proud at the time. Yeah. And I know my dad's really proud of me. It's funny. It's not that he's not proud of me. He just thinks I could have done better in my life. <laughs> you know, fair enough. Hey, I have a father who sounds very similar. I think it sharpens the sword or the, the, fury, the mind the, or the fury. Resentment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? But it's been good for me, though, too, to be tested by my father like that. You mm. know, I mean, my dad literally... And I do mean literally, judges my meals that I, I make for him out of 10. He gives me marks out of 10 every time I put a meal down in front of him. Now, the good news about that is this Christmas, I got 10 out of fucking 10. <laughs> How many times have you got 10 out of 10? Well, I've never had 10 out of oh, 10. So this yeah, was this Christmas first. was my first 10 oh out of 10. God. I'm going to rewrite the intro. 10 out of fucking 10, <laughs> mate. So speaking of 10, after 10 years of being the zeitgeist band, you know, that Garbage was, the band was pretty much almost overnight dropped and you guys disbanded in 2005. Tell us about that shock. Oh, it was grim. It was just absolutely grim. I don't have very many nice memories of that time. You know, bands are such delicate microcosms. And when something goes wrong, strangely enough, I think everybody blames themselves 
more than they actually blame each other. But there is also mudslinging. Mudslinging occurs because you're failing in adverted commas, i.e. we stopped selling and we were no longer interesting to the public. There was just tension grew and grew and grew in the band. Like everybody thought they could fix the problem. Each individual member thought they knew the answer to fixing the problem, but also really blamed themselves for all the decisions that had been made. And, you know, it's very easy when you're in the throes of disappointment to believe that mistakes have been made. But, of course, you have to think long-term, but we were thinking short-term. Mm. And just the tensions grew and grew. And it got to the point I said to my husband at the time, you know, like, we could literally come up with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band right now, put it out, and everyone would piss on it. It's just, we have run out of time. And I was really smart that I recognised this. I really recognised just, like, there is a fatigue that we are suffering from, not just socially, but in our own spirits. And we had a meeting in Australia. We had been told that our British European tour wasn't selling very well. And I was just like, I'm going home. I'm not going to go and struggle through another tour. We were already in Australia and it was hard. I was like, I'm going home. And I said to the band, like, I'm going home and I think we should take a break. And everybody was like, yeah, fair enough. Let feel the same way. Let's just take a break. And it was never meant to be a hiatus of any sort, but it just grew into that because about a year after us taking a break, my mum got really sick. My mum started, you know, my mum was dying. And then my best friend lost her young husband and I was, other friends of ours lost their six-year-old son. It was just one thing after another, mm. one funeral after another, just a lot of pain. And there was just no energy or interest in performing or writing or being with the band or anything. And then after about five years of total disaster, and I do mean disaster, like I had surgery and all kinds of things occurred. And then eventually I was like, I want to do this again. And I went to Coachella and I was just like, mm, yeah, everyone's okay. I could be doing this. I'm really good at what I do. I should be doing this. Why am I not doing this? I could be here. Why am I not here? And then I just was like, I called up the band and we eventually all agreed to start working together again. And almost you kind of realized maybe at that point that you were great. Well, I think we realized we were really good at what we did mm. and that we had to stop expecting ourselves to perform the way we once did. And that if we wanted to be artists, all we needed to do was make work, mm. like make music. And nobody can really take that away from you. Yeah, sure, you might not land a spot anywhere in the world, but you're doing something that matters to you and is a creative and enjoyable. And we were lucky enough that we had being the canny Midwesterners and Scott that I am, we had kept money aside and we had money in the communal garbage pot to spend on a studio. We were able to fund our own record and got ourselves back up on our feet, you know. And on your terms. On our terms. Although, you know, it's never on your own terms 100% when you're dealing with the music industry, unfortunately. It's very hard. I mean, even just getting things manufactured now is difficult. Mm. But yeah, it was much more on our terms and we had fun. And we made a good record and we got such a beautiful response when we decided to do a few shows. Like everybody was like, what? And it really buoyed us up and then it got us through that first sort of re-emergence. And then since then, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but we've been going longer now than we did before the so-called hiatus. Kind of crazy. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. Oh my God. Rebuilt. We rebuilt ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And by this point, you'd also moved to LA mm -hmm. and you'd picked up your soulmate. My soulmate. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> tell us about that. Like, tell us about 
being here with Vila and like just what this part of the States opened up for you? Well, I didn't want to come to LA, but I knew I had to because if I'd stayed in Madison, Wisconsin, which was where my husband was based at the time, I would never get out of there. So came to LA, we bought a house. My mum was dying. I was miserable. I wasn't making music. Billy, my husband said, I'm going to get you a dog. I was like, I don't want a dog. It's too much responsibility. And he went, I've just been looking and there's these puppies at this local shelter if you're interested. And of course, he knew that I wanted a terrier because I love terriers. And I saw these puppies. I was like, okay, I'll go and look at the puppies. So I go and look at the puppies and I feel every single puppy I lift, every single one up. And they're so adorable. But I don't feel that crazy thing that you really want to get from falling in love. And my husband was like, are you are you not into any of them? Because, of course, he was in love with each and every one of them. And I was like, yeah, no, no, I'm just not feeling it, you know. And then the lady that ran the shelter was like, would you be interested in an older dog? And we were like, yeah. And she pointed over at this cage and there was Vila. And she was, you know, had heavy nipples because she just had the puppies and she looked a little bit distressed. And I was like, yeah, I'd be into an older dog. They lift her up, they put her in my arms. The second, and I do mean the second she is in my arms and I feel her weight, I turn around to Billy and I say, this is my dog. And sure enough, it was my dog. We adopted her. And the lady at the shelter said she's very special. And I was thinking to myself, everybody says that about every dog. (laughs) But we ended up with a real humdinger of a creature. Terrier love forever. I mean, really intense. And she just got me out of the house because I had to walk her. And terriers are mental. And if you don't exercise them, they will go mad. Mm. They'll destroy your home. They'll tear around all all day long and all night long. And so I'd go up for five-mile hikes up into Griffith Park. And she got me fit. She got me calm. And she quite literally lowered my hypertension. Uh, my blood pressure dropped. That's the magic of the Vila. So she is a mentor and a teacher still to this day. Still to this day. And of course, she's really old. She's 16. She's blind. She's deaf. She's senile. And she's still sweet as pie. And she's still really gutsy Mm. and funny. But yeah, like I'm having to make my peace with, as I keep saying to everybody that I know, it's like Vila's sliding out the back door. And it's really, really intense. But I feel like she's like, it's okay, mummy. Death is okay. Like losing your immediate reality on life it's it's fine I'm happy I'm moving on and you can follow me in a few years time and it's all nothing to be scared of oh yeah I know it's intense it's like I don't know what I'm gonna do it's like she had a stroke earlier this year when we got back from Scotland we picked her up and she was limp and she'd had a stroke and it was horrendous and my husband like literally cried I think for something like 18 hours straight and then we were like we'd made peace like okay Vila's on her way out it's okay, we're going to let her go today. And then the vet was like, she's made a remarkable recovery overnight. And sure enough, she's kind of bounced back. But it gave us a dry run of like, this is what it's going to feel like. It's not going to feel good. But Vila's like, it's okay, mummy. Everything's fine. I'm fine. We're talking about another mentor. You mentioned Sharon, your acting coach. And this, this was around the time you were doing Terminator. And she said, you have time. Those three words, which I remember you telling me made a really big impact on you. Yeah, she was incredible, my acting teacher, because I'd been on a TV show and my agent at the time was like, if you want to do more acting, you should really go and learn a few lessons. So I went and studied with this teacher called Sharon Chatton, who's just absolutely extraordinary. And she taught me infinite amount of things that I could bore you with. But the most important to me, the thing that she taught me the most was she had this exercise, which was giving yourself permission to make mistakes, to 
fumble the ball, to take a detour, to not go from A to B, but like meander elsewhere. And she, she kept talking about this idea as a creative of like having time. And I've used it a million times with other artists that I know of. Like, you have time. Like, I, I know so many young people who say to me, by the time you were my age, you were doing this, you were doing that, you were doing this, you were doing that. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't compare yourself to anybody else. Mm. And let's think about my band. They were in their 40s. Like, you have time to get this right. You have time in your life to do anything you please. You can jump out of the plane at any point, too, and change direction. Like, my sister is a nurse, amazing nurse. She's done it her whole life. And just this last couple of months, she's like, I want to do something else with my life. You know, as I'm older, she's nearly 60 and she wants to try something new. And I just think it's so exciting and brave and fabulous, you know, and God only knows where it will all go for her. But the fact that she's got the guts to go, I've got time to try something else. You know, age is just becoming who we were always meant to be. I think there's so much made of it, particularly by women. Understandably so, I hasten to add. You know, women are brainwashed into believing that time is finite for them. And of course, literally it is, right? I mean, I'm not saying that time doesn't matter because unfortunately it does. We all run out of time. But within the time frame that you are blessed with, you have time to to just wait. And sooner or later, things change and shift and move on. And, you know, whether you like it or not, every bad day comes to an end. Every bad experience God willing, comes to an end one way or another. You know, I don't think any of us are taught patience. I think women in particular are taught that they're past 25 years old, they're on the downward spiral, you know, and I just think it's nonsense. I think, yeah, that's like, that's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> most of my pals are 70, 80 plus, and they're the most creative, most alive, most interesting people I know. So I sort of think we've got to really flip that paradigm. I think so too. I think it's really sad actually that we're at this point in our culture. There's just this intense pressure on women in particular, but it happens to men too, to look like they're they're 20 year old selves and it's sick. It actually scares me. It's like sad. It's like, well, really you think that the gifts of life stop being given to you past 25 years old? Because it's just not the case. But I think if you freeze yourself and force yourself into a mold of yourself that you believe is the most attractive version of yourselves, you just lose out in so much joy. Okay, Shirley Manson. Now, speaking of time and thinking of space, what is the music you would send into space? Well, I've thought about this long and hard, and it's difficult to say because, again, my musical choices change on any given day, but today I would send out... Spiegel im Spiegel by um, Arvo Park, who I am obsessed by. I just love their composing, you know, I just think it's so beautiful. But this particular piece I heard for the first time in Kerala, in India, in the middle of this beautiful room. It literally made me feel like I was floating in outer space. I was somewhere completely unfamiliar, of course, to me. I don't know if you've ever been to India, but it literally is like arriving on another planet. It's extraordinary. Everything about it is extraordinary. The colours, the smells, the sensations, the people, the food, the architecture, everything about it is extraordinary and wild. And I was listening to this piece of music and I just can remember, like, I literally felt like my soul had seeped out of my body and was floating above my head in this room. And I, I can't remember ever feeling so content in that piece than when I listened to this piece of music so I'd send this to outer space so that aliens knew that we mean no harm that we are capable of great beauty and great magnanimousness and 
poetry. Amen. <laughs> now we're going to take a listen to Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Part. And that was Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Part, and that was the music that Shirley Manson would send into space. And I have to say, Shirley, this piece of music is actually one from when I was like a teenager. I did start meditating, and then I still meditate. That was the piece I'd meditate oh, to. Oh, wow. So uh, when I saw you choose this, I was like, oh. Oh, that's I, funny. It's so beautiful. It's outrageous, as so much of their composing is, mm. just extraordinarily beautiful and the amount of space within it the thing i love about it is the spaciousness yes it's exquisite so imagining that we're way out looking back at our beautiful marble right now how do you feel about the state of the world oh god yeah i mean it's it's dark right now i feel it's very very dark you know post-trump did untold damage globally exacerbated an already rising right wing an unbelievable hatred of women, an unbelievable determination to to control women, hateful rhetoric towards black, brown, indigenous peoples, no respect, no kindness, no love. And the attitude towards LGBTQ, particularly the trans community, makes me sick. There's so much sickness in the world, but the only thing that allows me to continue on on a daily basis is I do believe all these ghastly political movements that the world has seen since time began always ebbs and it doesn't always garner more and more power. Quite the opposite. It tends to like splash and then ebb. And I feel like that's how culture is, you know, and we make slow increments. We can't always see it, but I do know that my, and I think I've spoken to you about this before, I know that my life is better. I have more freedoms than my mother did and my mother had more freedoms than her mother and so on, so forth. Through time, things slowly change and I have to believe that otherwise I would go mad. Of course, most of all, the, the most pressing thing is the complete disrespect we have for the planet. And then it seems like 50% of the planet is determined not to look at the mess we're making because it makes them feel uncomfortable. I mean, this whole thing about this makes me feel uncomfortable, so I'm going to ban this book. Critical race theory makes me uncomfortable, so I'm going to pretend it never happened. I mean, it's insanity. It's absolute insanity. And it really feels like the lunatics are running the asylum. But again, I do believe that it's going to flip and it has to. And I have to believe that a younger generation are not going to tolerate the same kind of bigoted nonsense that our generations and the generations before us have had to endure. Surely young people are a little bit smarter and surely young people have some sense of survival. And if they don't, then fuck it. Then we all deserve to burn. I have to hope that the younger generations realise just how absolutely imperative it is that they start paying attention to what the decisions of foolish politicians are making that are 
absolutely fucking with the planet. I mean, even Biden today has some ghastly oil drilling in Alaska, you know, that threatens. Ugh, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's such short-termism. And I'm just wondering where the brave politicians are going to come from, the ones from the past who made really brave, difficult decisions on behalf of the world. You know, I think about Franklin Roosevelt, for a random example, you know, like without him, one wonders where America would be currently and or where the rest of the modern world would be in terms of fighting against Hitler and so on and so forth, the rising Nazism. And it's hard not to get disheartened, I have to say, but I am optimistic, as I said, that there's going to be a survival instinct that sits in the bellies of the young'uns and they're going to push back and not tolerate the nonsense that we have, or we have been so unaware of. I mean, I had no idea about climate change until, I don't know, 10 years ago, you know, in my 40s. The thing that's terrifying, I find terrifying, is we've done more exponentially more damage in our awareness of climate change than we ever did in our ignorance of it. Oh, God. Yeah, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, if you start to think about it, it's really distressing. Really distressing. But hope. You got. I think you've got to have hope and anger. Well, I definitely have plenty of that. I also am, and I know you are too, such a lover of science and the extraordinary, boundless imagination of scientists and dedication and work and brain power. It's astounding even now, some of the things that, you know, I follow new scientists on Instagram. It's my absolute favourite account because it's the only thing that makes me feel good about life. And the things that human beings are capable of coming up with to try and deal with some of the mess we've yeah. made is astounding. And I would add to that, the more we can look at nature, because the thing is, is we often think we're so great at coming up with innovation and technology. Ignoring the lessons. No, well, we are nothing compared to nature's Correct. technology and innovation. And there is so much to learn from what already exists and has billions of years of evolution on us. And we just have to have some humility to realize it. Because I think as soon as we start powering nature's technology, nature's regenerative powers, that's when things get really crazy exciting. But we've sort of taken ourselves apart from the whole interconnectedness of it all. I remember an amazing piece about the power of a spider web and how we haven't yet been able to figure out how it works and how, how strong it is. <laughs> I don't know. It's just amazing. There's so much mind-blowing. Yeah. Fungi, like even the fact that fungi wasn't considered a kingdom and now finally it's like, oh it's no. It's all about the fungi. It's now all about <laughs> the fungi. You know. Yep. What do you treasure most about life on earth, Shirley Manson? Oh God, that's a really good question. This is going to be a really sad answer, BT. I'm going to disappoint you. Eating. Why, <laughs> <laughs> Why would that disappoint I, me? I would just like to have a higher thought process but I fucking love to eat I love to eat delicious things I love to experience weird foods from different cultures that brings me unbelievable unfettered joy eating what is the song you'd have play at your memorial I would play white horses which was the theme song to Czechoslovakian tv show I watched in the 70s with my sisters and it was about a stable girl called Julie and she would ride this incredible white horse. And the theme song is to this day. I just love listening to it. And it's just spectacular. I mean, it literally is about going off into the unknown, into to the ether, disappearing into the ether on white horses. Let me ride away. It's just so beautiful. Who sings it? Who's it by? I don't know her second name, but she's known as an artist called Jackie. Is it Jackie Lee? Jackie Lee. White Horses by Jackie Lee. Let me ride away 
And that was White Horses by Jackie Lee. That was the song that Shirley Manson would have play at her funeral memorial. And very much also has that spirit of somewhere over the rainbow, you know. Oh, it's exactly the same. Yeah. So the beginning and end. Topping and tailing. Ultimately the same, really. Exactly. Um, I have to ask you something. You said when you listened to the Arvo part piece that you felt your soul floating. But you said at the beginning, no spirituality. So how do you feel about death and thinking about it is obviously stupid because we can't think about it because it goes beyond thought but how how do you feel like what's your sense of it well to quote julian barnes there's nothing to be afraid of you know nothing to be frightened of i just don't worry about it at all i feel like i've had an amazing life and death doesn't scare me i understand it's coming hopefully it'll come later than sooner but i just think you stop being conscious the same way like you go onto an operating table and they administer the anesthesia and boom, you're out. And it's such a gorgeous feeling of relinquishment for me. Like I love having surgeries, <laughs> which is really sick. I know that's not something I should say, but it's true. I love that feeling of you feel the anesthesia coming down the pike and you're just like, all right, I might. <sighs> so yeah, I don't really fear death at all. I was most affected by my mum's death, obviously. And I remember just feeling so cross that my mum was just stamped out like an inconsequential little ant. But I realised, well, I'm the inconsequential little ant too. We're all inconsequential. We're nothing. We're just, we're here and then we're not. And all our monumental thoughts are nothing, really. And instead of that demoralising me, I find it really elating. It, it, it makes me think, oh... I can make decisions and maybe they're the right ones, maybe they're the wrong ones. They're the decisions that I've made that are the best I can do under the circumstances. It's so be it. Like I just feel like it gives me permission in my life to make mistakes and fumble around and deviate. And I find it relieving, really. I don't want to die horribly. That's the only thing. But, you know, I don't get the choice, do I? It's marching towards us all. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But in some ways, I find that also uplifting and that I'm like, okay, let's get to some life here. I'm not a big fan of people that really complain too much about their situation. Like I get it every now and again, you need to have a good whine and a moan, right? Things don't go your way. You lose somebody you love. Your marriage falls apart. Your pet dies, whatever. There's a lot of shit that happens to people, but I'm not a big fan of people that mope too much mm. for too long. I'm like, all right, let's go. Come on. Because I think that's life content, life situation as opposed to life. And I feel like life is always now. Life yeah. is always here now to be enjoyed. And we're so often in another psychological time or space and missing all of that. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, history is happening right now as we speak. <laughs> On this table. <laughs> On this table with you and I, BT Wolf. Just a few more questions. Speaking of imperfections, you just mentioned mistakes and detours. And I know you celebrate and love imperfections and rawness in others. I know you've said that. That's actually what you look for. But how about yourself? And have you got kinder about, you know, viewing your imperfections over time, over you know, your life so far? And is self-doubt still a companion? I think self-doubt will always be my companion. 
for a billion and one reasons. Some of my self-doubt has served me well, so I'm not overly sad about it. I mean, sometimes I tell stories about my own self-doubt and people feel sad for me. I don't feel sad for me. Like I felt it has served me quite well, really. With regards to how I apply my sense of imperfections to myself, that has shifted with each decade. And there is something absolutely glorious that nobody ever seems to talk about, which is when you can you get to the point when you really are like I am looking at late middle age. Like I'm not even in middle age anymore. I'm in late middle age. And there has been something so beautiful about that. It's so relieving. I don't sit there and look at myself in the mirror the way I used to. Like I don't sit there ever anymore going, oh, wow, I've got a wrinkle. Oh, wow, my eyes are hollow. Oh, wow, my jawline is slipping. I don't think about it. I literally don't think about it. I'm like, there's nothing I can do about it unless I want to go under the knife. I don't want to go under the knife. It's just not that important to me. And it's not like I sit there and look at people who have fixed their flaws and admired it. Like, I don't sit there and admire certain figures in our culture that everybody else seems to admire. I just don't admire it. I don't sit there and go, wow, you really have given me something to aspire to. In fact, I just go, oh, bless, you know, good luck with aging because this is going to be a hard ride if you can't forgive yourself. But each their own, right? So there's some amazing characters out there who've done some amazing things to themselves and they seem perfectly happy. And so who am I to like judge it? I'm just saying like for me personally, I'm not attracted to it. I don't uh, find it interesting or inspiring or thrilling. Like somebody like Vivian Westwood to me was such a huge inspiration. To me, she looked absolutely beautiful to the day she died. Not one tiny concession to aging. You know, like she wasn't trying to hide any of her aging. She looked extraordinary to me. And that's what I aspire to. It's like, I want to be like Vivian Westwood when I grow up. Like, I want to be that strong. I want to be that engaged with the world so that I'm not thinking about myself. And I think that's what she, what was happening with Vivian was she had her brain was mulling over much bigger things than herself. I don't want to think that myself is the center of my universe because I think it's going to be the source of misery for me. And so the more I look out, the better I feel. The further I look, the less I'm looking at myself, you know. And I've just, you know, gone through major hip surgery, getting a hip replaced, which, you know, I thought was going to devastate me because it's so, it's such an OG thing to do, right? It's like only old people get hip replacements, right? In adverted commas. And it really messes with your mind, you know, when you're using a walker and, and you can't get down to a toilet, you have to have an assisted toilet. I, I mean, you really have to lose all, all your ideas about your former self. Mm. You have to give that all up. But then there's something really beautiful about it. Just accepting yourself, accepting what you're capable of. It's just been a very profound experience for me in a way. Like I had to use a bedpan. I had to pee in a bedpan in front of two nurses I'd never met before in my life. You know, didn't know from Adam. And they're sitting there looking at me going, yeah, you can use your bedpan. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm trying to use the bedpan. <laughs> no pee will come. And then you pee and then you're thinking to yourself, wow, I've just peed in a bedpan in front of people I don't know. And then they clean you up and... They've seen your vagina and your asshole and your pubic hair and everything. They've seen everything and they don't care. And then I, I was suddenly like, well, I don't care either. <laughs> it's fine. It's cool. And it's such a feeling of <gasps> freedom. freedom, 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 freedom. It's really crazy. Life is crazy. It's such a trip. And for the most part, it's good fun. I mean, aging is difficult to look at your body. Aging is really hard. And I was always naturally, I had a really good body. I didn't have, to, I've never had to diet. I've never been on scales. It's not been part of my language at all. But now to like watch my body age is, 
oof, it's a trip. But I would say, like in art, the imperfections are the things that move us. The imperfections are the things that we actually connect with and that we respond to. And I feel it's the same in people. It's like that whole thing of having the symmetrical, perfect, perfect face or whatever those tests they've done and then people find it really unattractive. I don't know. I think beauty is about a whole other thing. You know, it is energy. It is soul. It's the language you speak, right? Mm. So you and I, for us, what you're describing is exactly what we're attracted Mm. to. And I think maybe it's different for some other people. They do love the perfection. Yeah, lesser beings. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you feel life is about? I don't think really it's about much, which I think is why we must try and enjoy it. I don't think there's any great meaning behind it. It's just we're part of nature's crazy, random creativity and we're just part of that creativity we've just been plopped down like like an army of ants Mm. so yeah i do feel more and more the longer i'm alive i'm like oh it's just about having a good life and being happy and then that comes to an end and that's that so you may as well have had a good life and been happy what's the point in anything else what is the record you'd pass on to the next generation in my mind i'm thinking your niece whenever i think about my death and or the future, I think of my niece and nephew, for sure, my sister's children. I don't have any kids. I've never wanted any. I'm not particularly interested in children, unlike a lot of people. I just see them as starter adults, and I find starter adults not quite as interesting as adults, but that's just me. But when I think about passing on a record to the future generations, of course, there are a multitude, right, of records that I'd be like, oh, you have to have this. But today, I would definitely mention an artist like Sinead O'Connor, because obviously there are artists, but they will be remembered. Like, I feel like, you know, Nina Simone is not going to be forgotten, right? Now, that's a goat right there. Like, she's one of the greatest of all time. She must be remembered. She will be remembered. But I worry about Sinead O'Connor because I feel like she pissed so many people off that there is this danger that she'll be forgotten about. Probably not, because she's so extraordinary. But, you know, I just want to ensure that she doesn't get forgotten about. I think she is someone very, very special who makes extraordinary records, has a God-given voice unlike any other voice out there. I've never heard anyone else who sounds like Sinead O'Connor. She sounds absolutely much like a Nina Simone or a Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald or Peggy Lee. They all they all have unique sounds to their voice and I think Sinead's up there with the best of them. And not only has she got the, this incredible voice, but she's an incredible writer, which makes her a double threat. Again, like Anina Simone, like they can write as well as perform and sing. And I think an artist like Sinead is so incredibly important. They're very out of vogue currently. Like it's very unusual to find an artist like a Sinead O'Connor currently in, in our musical landscape. And I have my theories about why that is, but that's a whole other conversation. Suffice to say, I picked I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got because I think it's an extraordinary record. She's saying some very, very important things. I think I picked Black Boys on Mopeds, although I could have easily picked Three Babies. I could have easily picked Nothing Compares to You. I mean, there's just song after song after song on this record. Extraordinary writing. A lot of it's on acoustic guitar and voice, you know. I just recently watched a documentary about her and it really moved me because I think we've all forgotten just how extraordinary she is and how much we need someone like that and she's so fragile she's the complete opposite of the kind of pop stars we have right now which are practically bulletproof they grew up on stage schools 
They are like robust. They get all their songs written for them. They go out like little ants. robots or ants <laughs> into the world and, and they have hit after hit after hit after hit and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But someone like Sinead was so fragile, remains so fragile and a bit kooky sometimes and has had awful uh, misfortunes throughout her life. She's fucked everybody off. She's challenged organized religion. She dared to challenge someone like Prince. You know, there, there's all kinds of challenges that she has taken part in. And she's just really righteous and and a jewel. And we're going to end with Black Boys on Mopeds in just a few minutes. Um, from the record, I do not want what I haven't got by Sinead O'Connor. How do you feel about the notion of your legacy? I did see somewhere that you said legacy is an inherently male concern. I think it's a male conceit. Maybe that's changing. Um, as I pointed out earlier on, up until the last 10 years, we haven't seen any women actually working in you know, the media in their 70s and 80s. And you have to last that long to really establish a legacy in mm. some respects. So I think it's been harder for women to establish a legacy. I think there's some people that create a legacy because they do something magnificent, like a proper legacy. <sighs> yeah, I don't care. I'll be dead. Who gives a shit? You know, everyone talks about icons. It's like... Just because somebody's successful and sold a shitload of records or just somebody's been in a billion movies doesn't make them an icon. Like, there's so few real icons and there's a reason for that. But that said, I do think it's important that women continue to consolidate their reputations mm. because so few of us remain in the historical lexicon, you know, anywhere on any subject or any achievement. You know, women scientists are forgotten about. Women actors forgotten about women musicians don't don't get the same kind of kudos that their male counterparts do there's only something like seven percent of women in the rock and roll hall of fame you know i mean it's just like one thing after another totally women are excluded from historical sort of recall but so, then thinking about your legacy in that respect and what you have quite funny. done to push things forward <laughs> no and really and what you have done to give a voice to the voiceless and the ostracized what you have done not on a fame and a bullshit level, which you've also, you know, you've sold millions of records as we've talked about. And I've bullshitted a lot. What you've done <laughs> on a really deep, fundamental human rights level, that's the legacy I'm talking about. Well, you know, again, I grew up in a re pretty religious household. My dad would literally give his shirt off his back. I grew up with watching him. Like, he, he'll have no money. You know, he's a pensioner. And he'll give it all to, like... The Ukrainian children this winter. You know, I mean, my dad's a good guy, a really, really good, generous guy. And he taught me a lot about if you have 10 pounds hanging around, give it away. Like, think about other people. You must think about other people. If they're under threat, you must speak up. You know, I was a bullied kid, a bullied teenager. Nobody stuck up for me. Not one person. Well, actually, that's not true. There was one boy who once stood up for me. And it was such a relief, the feeling of like, oh, wow, somebody's got my back. I think it's important that you speak up for those that you're seeing maligned and mistreated, you know. And I just can't keep my mouth shut. That's my other problem, you know. But if I see unfairness, like, I have to speak up. I would want somebody to speak up for me. What is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices? Oh, God, that's a good question. I mean... I guess it would be my ego or lack thereof at times. And thinking about music today, but actually I'm going to make this specifically about the imbalance in music today in terms of female representation in the greater entertainment world. What do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost, say, since the time that you were growing up? Such a good question, BT. I'm not entirely sure 
we have gained very much, to be honest. I mean, I was lucky in that garbage emerged in the 90s, which was an extraordinary time for non-conforming people, specifically women, but also for the LGBTQ community at large. Things started to slowly improve. We started talking about AIDS. We started talking about amazing gay characters on TV, like women who were not sort of conservative or conventional were being given space in our media. I felt like the 90s were really kind of incredible that way. It's like there's so many rebels coming out, female rebels. And and now I feel like we're living at a very conservative, polarized time and intolerant time. And it kind of depresses me a little. And I don't know if women have really gained very much since the 90s. I think there was this explosion. And then for the last 20 years or so, arguably since September 11th, actually, I feel like things really clamped down and got conservative again in the Western world. And the Western world influences the rest of the world. And when the Western world gets conservative, the rest of the world gets even more conservative, which is just a bad scene for anyone who isn't white and male. It's just a bad scene. And so that's kind of how I feel currently where we're at. It's just not great. But as I said earlier, I think we will rise again. Because it will go so far one way. Well, it's already gone yes. so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> far right. I mean, what's happening in Iran yeah. is, I mean, it doesn't get much worse, right? That a woman is going to get beaten to death because she let her scarf fall off her hair. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's about as bad as it gets. Or women are being forced, knowing that they have a dead child in their bellies, are being forced to take it to full term and, and After being give birth. raped. Children can get raped legally by family members. Or, I mean, it, it just can't get much worse, I don't think. So, yeah, hopefully we're going to see a spring back from that. Again, women really understand there is a war on women. There's a global war on women as there is a global war against anyone, as I said, who's not white and male. As there is a global war against nature, Mm -hmm. as there is a global commodification of music and art to a point of it being so beyond the realm of what we're talking about, which is music as something so fundamental to our well-being yeah i think it's all swung so far and what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do you guys are just about to go back on tour so what is it that you want to leave i want to leave behind the idea that women deserve an equal seat at the table that is probably really important to me like above a clean earth i realize that The disadvantage that women have in society, for me, is a real problem. It's angered me throughout my entire life, and I want that to change. I want my niece to enjoy more equity, and I don't know, it's difficult to put into words, I think, for me. I don't quite know how to verbalize it other than an indignance at how women are treated in this life, and I want to pass on the idea to another woman, another girl, another teenager, another house-bound female stuck in a house somewhere. You can get out and you can use your voice and you can object and you can fight and you can rebel. I guess I'm not very good at these kind of questions. That was perfect. (laughs) Actually, a clean earth and women having a proper seat at the table go hand in hand. 
Yeah, one would argue that it's all interlinked, right? This is the problem is we've had so much male dominance in in global politics for so long that so much has been forgotten and left by the wayside. I'm not suggesting for a second that if we had all women, it would be much better. I'm sure they would have horrendous biases as well. But I really do think that we all need to pull this boat together, like everybody from all walks of life. And it sounds so naive, but I really believe it. It's it's fundamental to our survival as a race, I think. The male ego has risen as the divine feminine has been suppressed. Mm-hmm. And when those two things happen, and this is male ego also, women aping you know, male ego, which is like the, the thing you were saying about the girl lads, women sort of aping the men in the 90s. And it's like, no, we need to... We need to bring the divine feminine back into the equation, whoever we are, Mm. because that's also what is deeply inherently connected with... And the divine non-binary too. I mean, God forbid we need these perspectives more urgently than Mm. ever, you know. Again, I think humans are trapped by the binary. You know, it's funny because when there's been so much conversation about non-binary and trans peoples and this, that and the next thing, and to me it's just freedom, why anyone would fight that idea is amusing to me. It's like, don't you understand? This is offering us all freedom of these cages that we're all stuck in. Until we embrace all these ideas, yeah, the human race is in a lot of trouble. Well. On that uplifting <laughs> note, <laughs> we're doomed. We're doomed. <laughs> I think that was the most appropriate note to end on. <laughs> So, Shirley, uh, we're now going to have a listen to Black Boys on Mopeds from the record I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got by Sinead O'Connor. And thank you so much thank for your time you so much for and your, your power and your, and your voice. Back at you, BT Wolf. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Young mother. 